So today we're going to focus on the, the high point of the narratives about Abraham, and that is the, the sacrifice of Isaac. or It's called the binding of Isaac. In the Jewish tradition, they know it as the binding of Isaac. And I can't recall how they pronounce it in Hebrew, but uh, you know, there's some kind of traditional Hebrew title that they use. Um, so here's a very famous uh, pen and ink drawing by Rembrandt from 1655. He did a painting of... of uh, and the, 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 the painting was from 1635, 20 years earlier, and uh, it was called the, the Sacrifice of Isaac. So the earlier painting that he did was called the Sacrifice of Isaac, and then this pen and ink is called the Sacrifice of Abraham. That's the same, same setting, same scene, same, to- same topic. Uh, and uh, you see this is, a, this is a, 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 a very classic scene that's reproduced over and over and over again in, in artwork. And you see all these, Caravaggio's got a very famous scene and Rembrandt and all these different famous painters, they've got all this uh, very well-known images. And this is, this is right when the angel shows up and stops him from from he's ju- he's about to he's got the knife raised over his son and then the angel shows up and stops him very dramatic. I think that's a very great piece of artwork right there. So um, we want to go back to the original revelation uh, that's recorded in the Bible that's been that was given to Abraham. So we go back to chapter twelve, verses one through three. And as I was saying, in those verses. Uh, the entire, all of salvation history is contained in those three verses. It's a really, really dense uh, group of verses, and I hope to, by the end of this class, you eventually you'll see how that's the case. Now, you've got five, basically, according to me, you've got about five different elements in that original revelation. And uh, if anybody wants, that's got that handy and can read that for us, uh, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Who are some of our brave readers? Anyone? Okay. How about uh, Tony? Sure. <laughs> the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your land, your relatives, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. All the families of the earth will find blessing in you. Very good. So I think there's about five elements in all of that. Abraham's going to go to a land. He's going to be given a huge number of offspring or descendants. His name is going to be made great. And then God says, those who curse you, I will curse. Uh, and I interpret that as like the enemies of Israel more generally speaking and then in a deeper sense I think it has to do with the seed of the serpent because if we go back to Genesis chapter 3 you've got this cosmic conflict that's interposed right from the beginning is this I will place enmity between you between you and the woman between your seed and her seed and so there's this conflict right from the beginning and there's these two cities as we spoke about a few lessons ago so in any event, though, there's a, God says, I will curse those who curse you, and then in you all the nations of the world, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you all the families of the ground or all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there's these five elements. Now, again, I, I actually I need to 
probably as I develop this lesson, I'll, um, I'll go and I'll consult more commentaries on some of these points. The vast majority of what I'm presenting to you is either has already been taught and said and spoken as part of our tradition, or I've read it in modern scholars. But every once in a while, I, interest, uh, I put my own little piece in there. And uh, so the things that I put for myself are very few and far between. But I want to, later on, I'm going to go kind of check them and look at commentaries and see if they hold water. But I see something very interesting in that when you, when you then go after this blessing, you, you enumerate every time that God reveals himself to Abraham when Abraham's in the land, uh, it counts, it adds up to uh, seven times. So there's like these seven confirmations of this original promise in the, in this narrative. And I think, I mean, I think that's the case. And it would be very interesting because I want to break up all of salvation history into seven periods. That's a traditional way of breaking up salvation history into seven periods. And it would be even more interesting to see if each one of those confirmations of that original promise somehow in some way correspond to each era of salvation history. I don't know. That's just a guess. It's like a hypothesis that I might pursue, or you can if you want, in the future. So but just let's pay attention to these original five elements of that original revelation. So, now uh, I've got here revealed confirmation number one. All right? Genesis 12, 7. So, Abraham, it was re- that original promise was given to Abraham when he was in... Uh, oh, yeah, we're on slide uh, four right now. Uh, that original revelation was given to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. We learned that, actually. We can maybe infer it from the context, but it's more... Uh, it's more clearly put forth to us in Acts chapter 7 when St. Stephen gives this wonderful survey of salvation history. And as I said before, if you guys want uh, uh, some kind of like this big encapsulation in just one chapter of the Bible, go to Acts chapter 7. And that's where St. Stephen gives an entire overview of salvation history from the beginning to the end almost. It's wonderful. So in there, Stephen says that God revealed himself originally to Abraham when Abraham was in Mesopotamia when he was in Ur. So if that's the case, then Abraham gets that message. He travels him and his father and his, some of his relatives. They go to Haran. They stop there for a while. The father dies. Eventually, Abraham makes it to the promised land. So as he enters into the land, there is a confirmation of that original promise, just so Abraham knows he's not going crazy. You know, that God is now confirming to him and that confirmation is Genesis 12, 7, and I'll just read that real quick. So it says, Abraham passed through the land of the place of Shechem to the Oak of Morah. Uh, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Okay, now in verse 7 it says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your seed I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So he arrives in the Holy Land, and God says, kind of confirms that original promise, but... He only, God only confirms one element of that original promise. Remember, there's five elements to that original promise. But in this, uh, this first confirmation, he uh, confirms two elements. I'm sorry, descendants and the land. So I will give it to descendants. That's the second element. And then the land is the first element. Um, also, this is an observation. You know, maybe I'm reading into it, but it seems to me that every time God reveals himself and confirms a promise... It's just after Abraham has done something virtuous or some act of faith. So Abraham followed the the commandment of God, set out in faith, and went to the Holy Land. And right after he he makes that act of faith, God confirms that original uh, promise. 
Zach, were you going to ask something? Well, I wondered at this point that God's telling him to go into the, to go out into the land and build a nation. Is he talking about the construction of the first temple? I think it's actually implied in there whether Abraham understood that or not. I don't know, but I mean, okay. in, the, in the wisdom and the mind of God, in the heart of God, yeah, the, the temple would have included the that. Temple. Included. Yeah, certainly, the okay. temple would be included. And we're going to get into that. We'll show how that's the case. I think possibly Abraham even maybe even knew that prophetically. I don't know, but in any event, that that would be in God's intention. Yeah, His original okay. intention. Thank you. Sure. Okay, now we've got this revealed confirmation number two. So if we go to Genesis chapter thirteen. Uh, verses 14 to 17. Can we have someone read for us? <clears throat> so chapter 13, verses 14 to 17. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see I will give to you and to your descendants forever. Am I in the right place? Yeah, you're okay. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your descendants also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Great. Okay, now I think that that, there's this incident between Abram and his, I believe it was his nephew, his lot is his nephew, if I'm not mistaken. Some kind of relative, blood is a, is a blood relative of Abraham, and they have this conflict because the one thing that's interesting, and, and later on, I think as I develop this uh, lesson, this this whole series over the years, I'm going to show this is that Abraham was really quite a, he had a large entourage. You know, sometimes just because the narrative always focuses on Abraham, you kind of get this idea like he's this lonely shepherd out in the desert and he's just but actually I mean he probably actually had thousands of people with him that's how big his household was so he was more like a he was more like a tribal chieftain than this kind of lonely shepherd out in the middle of nowhere just all by himself and his whatever and his wife you know he he would have had thousands of people with him Um, because at one point he goes into a battle and he has 318 houseborn slaves or servants that go and fight with him and he, those are his. So I mean, that's got to be that's a, and those were born in his house. So that would be because there's probably thousands of people that he, he's like a little chieftain basically of a tribe or something. So um, Lot, his cousin, my, I say that all, all that to say is because Lot had a lot of property, and he had all of these shepherds that were working for him, and Abraham had all of his shepherds that were working for him, and Lot's shepherds and Abraham's shepherds had problems with each other. They couldn't, they couldn't agree as to where, what grazing ground, so there, there wasn't enough room for them. And so Abraham does something, what I, I think of as virtuous, and I think if you were to consult the tradition and probably even the modern common, uh, common, uh, commentators, they would say that Abraham is, is demonstrating a kind of a virtue because what he says to Lot, he says, Lot, I'm going to allow you to choose whatever part of this land that you want. You choose it and I'll take the rest. So he defers to his cousin over a land that had just been promised to him. You know, it was, it was really kind of an act of faith on Abraham's part, just like him giving up Isaac. You know, the promise was made, your seed is going to be named through Isaac, and so, but, this, but sacrifice him. Okay, so now I'm going to go sacrifice the very person through which the promise is going to come. It takes a lot of faith. So I think the same thing is taking place here with the land. So there's this conflict over the land, and, and Abraham says, 
you know what, here, you choose what you want and I'll just do the remainder. And so Lot chooses this very, very rich area in the Jordan Valley and then Abraham chooses, he goes, he goes away. And then it's after that when he's separated from Lot that God makes this other revelation to him. And uh, the revelation, that the confirmation is of land and descendants. So again, element one and element two. All right. Now we've got a third revealed uh, confirmation in Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6. And I can, I'll read that one. So Genesis 15, 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what wilt thou give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, thou hast given me no offspring, and a slave born in my house will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your own son shall be your your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your seed be. And he believed the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. So that's a very important you know, section here. The New Testament draws from that text quite a bit. St. Paul draws from that text quite a bit. And you know what I see here is um, Abraham goes through this great battle with these kings. He delivers Lot, and he delivers the king of Sodom from the, these, different, these other kings that were attacking him. And uh, it's a very kind of heroic battle recount. They, they pursue him like all across the, the entire breadth of the Holy Land. They attack him in the night. They get their horses and camels or whatever they were using. And, and uh, it's kind of a dramatic battle that takes place. And uh, the king of Sodom is very grateful to Abraham and says to him, okay, um, what, you know, what can I uh, give you? So of all, you know, you saved me, you saved all this kind of, you know, this booty from the, from the city. And what can I give you for doing this? And Abraham says, I'm not going to take anything. So he just did this great act, this heroic act of deliverance and he had no rewards. And then God appears to him and says, I am your very great reward. So Abraham, again, I think he's receiving these revelations and these confirmations of that original promise in response to acts of faith and, and, and virtue that he does. And then finally, so God promises, makes him this promise. So Abraham might be thinking at first this, maybe the promise is going to be fulfilled through Eleazar, this this guy who's a slave in his household, but he's kind of like a, uh, an MC, like he's like the master of the house. I mean, he's a very important figure. Abraham entrusts, you know, the, the government of his property to this guy. And so he thinks to himself, well, maybe there's going to be like a legal, like legally my descendants are going to come through this guy. And God says, no, but it'll be a son from your own body. And he brings him outside, and it's nighttime. He says, look up at the stars. If you can count them, so shall your descendants be. Very beautiful, wow. very beautiful scene, very beautiful promise. And then Abraham believes God and God reckons it to him as righteousness. So this is, that scene, that uh, line right there is what St. Paul bases almost the entire epistle of Romans on, is Abraham believed God and God reckoned it to him for righteousness. And so what we learn theologically is that um, 
faith is the root of righteousness, of justification. That faith is the foundation uh, upon which our uh, right relationship with God takes place. And we go all the way back to the first chapters of the Bible to learn that. Um, now notice though it's nighttime in that scene. Now you can get confused because if you go to verse 7, it seems like it's a conversation from a, from like the, the conversation continues, but it's not. Verse 7 begins a whole new, um, a whole new, uh, sort of section. Alright? So it would be revealed, uh, excuse me, confirmation number 4. So Genesis 15 verses 7 through 21. Alright? And this is, they, the Jewish, uh, commentators refer to this as the covenant between the covenant between the pieces, I believe is what, what they call it. Um, and uh, this is where there's a kind of a formal covenant that's made that God makes with Abraham. And uh, so 15 uh, verses 7 through 21. Um, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll read that and then I'll have you guys read the rest here. I'm going to be a hog here. Uh, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a she-goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in two, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Now that's the, that's the key. So note the sun's going down. So that conversation begins in the daytime. Whereas the previous scene, it must have been outside because God brings him and says, go walk outside and look at the stars. That's why I'm trying to show you. These are two different scenes. It's not a continuation. These are distinct revelations that Abraham is receiving on different days. Okay? So as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And lo, a dread and great darkness fell upon him. Now think about what, who else went into a deep sleep so far in the Bible, these first 12, 15 chapters. Adam. Adam. And what happened as a result of that sleep? Eve. Eve. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, what that, does anybody know that sleep of Adam is prophetic of another kind of sleep, so to speak? You, this is easy. You know, I'm always trying to try to tie everything into our Lord, right? So, what, uh, so our Lord uh, sleeps on the cross as well, and from His side is pierced, just like Eve was taken from the side of Adam in that sleep. Uh, so, Christ in His sleep of death, out from His side flow the sacraments, which give birth to the church. Okay, cool. baptism and the Eucharist. And so Abraham, so there's going to be connections here with this sleep, all right? They're similar. I can tell you in the, the Greek Bible, both of them, they, they say ecstasies, which we, we get our English word ecstasy. So they both fall into this kind of ecstasy, which is almost like a prophetic trance, all right? And so there's this kind of mystical or prophetic event that's going to take place. So God speaks to Abraham when he's in this prophetic trance, and he says, Know of a certainty that your seed will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be slaves there, and they will be oppressed for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation which they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now that really is very much like the passion of Christ. So Jesus, 
is enslaved, basically he's oppressed. He, you know, he, he experiences what the children of Israel experience <coughs> at the hand of the Egyptians. And, you know, again, the, the, the Egyptians are the seed of the serpent. Our Lord suffered at the seed of the serpent, the serpent himself, the devil, and the people that were basically wittingly or unwittingly working for the devil that crucified him. But there was a great deliverance that came out of that. See, Christ's Passover is like the Passover of the children of Israel. So there's a great deliverance that comes out of this great riches of salvation that flow forth out of Christ's Passover. So in verse 15, As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, this is a very cool scene here, so imagine it's nighttime right now, it's all dark, the sun's gone down. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your seed I give this land, from the river of Egypt, the great river, uh, to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites. So, um, <clears throat> if you can imagine these pieces of, like, say, take this goat that was cut in half, and then uh, along with three other, with two other sets of animals, and then a turtle dove and a, and a pigeon, and then in the darkness, this torch, like it's floating in the air, this pot of, with fire coming out of it, it just starts floating in between the pieces of the animals. Now, what's going on there is as is, is follows here. First of all, fire signifies God. It's something that God's often known for in the, in the Bible. For example, in Exodus, the Lord went before them. So when God leads the children of Israel out of Exodus, he goes before them in a pillar of fire. Okay? So the torch and the fire pot represent God's presence. Also notice only one of that original promise, one element of the original promise was confirmed. It was the land. Right? And, oh, and also this confirmation was made after Abraham makes that great famous exercise of faith in the previous scene. Okay, now we've got this phrase in Hebrew and the English translations don't normally translate it literally. But literally in Hebrew, when you say I'm going to make a covenant or someone makes a covenant, it's the word cut. I'm going to cut a covenant. All right. So you've got this idea of cutting a covenant. So in Genesis 15, 18, it says, on that day the Lord cut a covenant with Abraham. And there's the Hebrew word karah. So that's... Now your translations and mine don't say that. They say, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. But in the Hebrew, literally it's cut. Okay, And it goes back to the animals. So that's how they would make covenants in the ancient world. They take these animals, they cut them in half, and they'd walk between them. Okay, so if I made... If I made a covenant with another person, with another man, we would probably take one of my sheep and one of his sheep. We'd cut them both in half, and then both of us would walk through and make a promise that we're going to observe the the, um, the uh, standards or observe the agreements, that, uh, whatever our covenant was about. We're going to observe that. And that was a sign that our promise is, is sealed. So we walk in between the pieces. And basically what that is saying is that if I violate the terms of the covenant, if I violate my commitment to the covenant, may I be like this animal? Okay. So the, basically, the, the, there's like a curse that's going to fall on the person that breaks the covenant, and that animal is a representation of that curse. All right. 
Now, you get this very explicitly in the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 34, 18. This is God speaking. And those who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make like the calf which they cut in two and passed between its parts. Just to show you, there's another passage in the Bible that is dealing with this idea of cutting animals in half and walking between them. Um, also, a cutting produces blood. So blood is a very important part of the whole idea of covenants. So the two covenant parties now shared one blood. They were family. That's another element of the covenant. So going back again, I, I said this before, but when Moses in, in Exodus 24, when he makes the covenant between the Lord and the people, what he does is he goes to the altar. He has these young men, 12 young men, sacrifice these animals. He takes the blood and he sprinkles it on the book, on the people, and on the altar. Okay, and he says, this is the blood of the covenant that God, that the Lord has made with you. And so the blood is basically on both of these elements and showing that they're a family, essentially. They're one blood. All right? Um, I know when I was a little kid, uh, we had this thing. I, a friend of mine, I mean, when I say little, I mean we're talking probably six or seven or something. I remember I had a friend try to convince me to, he was a good friend, I guess. He, he, convinced, he tried to convince me to cut my arm, and he would cut his arm, and we'd rub blood on each other. <laughs> so that we would be blood. He, was, he, was, he assured me that this was totally legitimate, that this is what good friends do. And I'm like, oh, okay. Oh, I don't, I don't know. So that we're blood brothers. We're blood brothers. And I think he saw that on um, some television show with Indians, with Native Americans, <laughs> that would do this. The Native Americans would do this, cut themselves. And So if, that, if you could trace that back to the Native Americans... You know, they're doing what many people all over the world would do, is they, blood is a very powerful symbol for them. And it talks, it's about becoming family, right? Also, if one of the, the, the significance of the blood also means if one of the covenant parties broke the covenant, the, the sense would be, let his blood be shed, okay? So, but this is very interesting though, because... The, the two parties of this covenant are not two human beings. One human being and the other party is God. So God is saying, if I don't keep my words to you, may I be cut to pieces like these animals. All right? So how would God be able to die like these animals? Do what? He, he couldn't, but, well, maybe he could. If he, if he became man to die on the cross. All right. So how would God be able to die like these animals? Is this instance of anthropomorphism and divine condescension a foreshadowing of the incarnation and Christ's sacrifice on the cross? That's for you to decide. I think it is. <laughs> okay, so uh, here's another confirmation of that original promise to Abraham. This is the fifth confirmation. We go Genesis 17, uh, verses 1 through 22. Actually, there's a lot there, but I don't think we want to read the whole thing. But let me see if I can have someone volunteer to read. Um, how about we read verses 1 through 8? Okay? Who wants to volunteer for us? Verses 1 through 8. You want to do it? Go ahead. Nice and loud so our recorder can get you. Okay. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God the Almighty. Walk in my presence and be blameless. Between you and me, I will establish my covenant. 
and I will multiply you exceedingly. When Abram prostrated himself, God continued to speak to him. My covenant with you is this. You are to become the father of a host of nations. No longer shall you be called Abram. Your name shall be Abraham. For I am making you the father of a host of nations. Might keep going? Uh, yeah, I'll keep going, actually. I will render you exceedingly fertile. I will make nations of you. Kings shall stem from you. I will maintain my covenant with you and your descendants after you throughout the ages as an everlasting pact to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land in which you are now staying, the whole land of Canaan as a permanent possession, and I will be their God. Very good. Now, what's interesting about this one, this is a, an important covenant in which Abraham's name is changed. And he, so he goes from Abram to Abraham, father of many nations, and or great exalted father, something like that. Oh, yeah, I didn't know. I just got to look into that, what that means. But there's a name change that has to do with fatherhood and, and descendants and nations and things like that. Um, there's a third now element. Remember that original uh, promise that was made to Abraham in Mesopotamia. It consisted of those five elements. So far, every time there's a confirmation of that, only the first and the second element are talked about. But now finally we get the third element in there, the great name, or at least something about the name. Okay. And the other thing about the great name is that it has to do with kings. So the other passage in the Bible that says, I'll, I'll give you a great name or your name will be great, is when God has this revelation to King David and promises that the Messiah is going to come through him. So this great name that has, has royal connotations to it. And then even here, he says, kings will come forth from you. So there's a prophecy of all these kings of Judah coming forth out of Abraham this early. Now, Abraham also had, through Ishmael, um, he had, uh, and, and I think actually he had some other wives and some other children. I, have, I can't quite recall exactly, but I'm pretty sure he did. And there are probably kings that come out of those lineages as well. Um, but I think the primary reference here to kings is the Judah, is the kings of Judah and the Messianic lineage. Um, because later on, Jacob, this similar promise is given to Jacob and says specifically, I think it's in chapter 35, that uh, kings will come forth out of you, out of Jacob. So it's talking about the Messianic lineage here. Uh, and then circumcision is made. So this is, this is another covenant, another covenant, and the sign is circumcision. Now, I think, uh, Zach, to answer your question, there's a lot of meanings to, to the whole idea of circumcision. I think there's a lot to it. But uh, I think it, maybe a, a basic meaning would be that it was a sign of what would happen if the covenant was not kept. <laughs> the cutting off of the person and his descendants. Okay, it involved blood. Just like the cutting of the animal, the animal was like an exemplification of the, cur of the consequences of not keeping the pact not keeping the covenant, that animal that was cut in half. So what you were saying is if I don't keep my end of the bargain, I'm, may I be like that animal? So you're kind of swearing with your life, essentially, is what you're doing. And I think circumcision is possibly the same thing, is that 
because this is the organ of generation, and it's, you know, I mean, it has, you know, you don't want to have that cut off, okay, because then, because <laughs> there's no descendants then, all right? So this is an important part of it. I mean, okay, this is, this is like the important thing. You know, it's, if you're putting your life on the line, let's just say that, I'm trying to be modest here. What was that? Well, you just have it written down the cutting off of the person at his seat. Yeah, the person at his seat. The idea of the separation, and if you betray the covenant, so also will you lose the promise of yourself and your seat. And in fact, and in fact, people really saw themselves in the ancient world. I mean, still today, they see themselves in their seeds. So to to have the seed cut off is to like I'm dead. You know, if I don't have descendants, I might as well be dead. That's kind of the mindset. Okay. So, and then uh, the other thing, to, not to get too too gruesome here, or not gruesome, but uh, rated R or whatever, if you, if you say. But you know, when Abraham he asks his servants to go find a wife for his son Isaac later on, this is in Genesis twenty-three or twenty-four, and he has them swear, and like you know how you put, like I swear, I put my hand on my heart. Well, he actually they swear by put, taking their hand and placing it under the groin. Okay. Because it's like, you know, this is an important part. It has to do with the descendants and all this stuff. So the seed is really, it's really a big deal. It has to do with the generation, organ of generation and all that. Uh, there's probably more to circumcision than that, though. Okay, that's probably just like one sort of element or dimension. Okay, now, uh, Genesis 18. Now, this is where my theory might break down, and you can decide. So this is my private theory, was that there's these seven confirmations of that original promise. Someone might read Genesis 18, the, the Genesis Annunciation that we studied last week, they might read that as a confirmation uh, of that original promise because God shows up in the person of these three angels and he says, um, at this time, next year, Sarah will have a son. Okay, So someone might say that's a confirmation of the promise, but I would say maybe not because the promise had to do with the with the with the great distant future, and you know again maybe my theory might break down with eighteen. I'll, I'll, if you think it breaks down with, with because of eighteen, okay. But I think there is something kind of different about Genesis eighteen that sort of puts it outside of this series of seven confirmations of that original um, promise. What's also very interesting is this: so far we have not heard. Okay, so we've seen all these confirmations of those original five elements, but two have not been spoken about so far, two of those original five. So we've talked about land, we've talked about descendants, we've talked about the great name. What are the two that are missing so far that have not been featured in any of these confirmations? Curse and blessing. The, the what? The ones, right? The curses, the person, the people who curse you, I will curse, and then what else? People who bless you, I will bless well, yeah, so I'm kind of including that. I'm including that in the same thing. Blessing go. No, because remember the name, Abraham's name changed. What's the fifth element? Blessing to all the nations. Yeah, so that hasn't been included in any of the confirmations yet. Okay, But it does show up in Genesis 18. Yet, it's not, it's not revealed to Abraham. And that's why, again, I put it outside the series of the seven confirmations because this is a very great scene and next week we're going to get into this is God pauses and he's thinking to himself should I reveal to Abraham what I am about to do yes I will because he is bound to become a great nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed in him 
and he will charge his household after him to keep the way of justice and righteousness so that I might be able to bring upon his descendants the promises that I've made to him. So he, here's God. We're, we're, we enter into the thoughts of God. It's pretty incredible. And so in the thoughts of God, there's the mention of the blessing to all nations, but it's not spoken to Abraham. We as the reader are privy to it, but, Abraham, but it's not revealed to Abraham. That confirmation is not given to Abraham. So that's why, again, I put it outside of this series of seven um, seven confirmations. But the other interesting thing is this, when God says that, in him all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, he changes the words from the original, uh, different words show up from the original uh, promise. And the original promise in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, nations, it's, it's uh, families, okay? Um, and then uh, earth is uh, Adama, which can be translated ground which was very significant because it goes back to the cursing of the ground back in the beginning to Adam. Okay, but, but this one says Eretz, which is earth in general, the, the world, the earth, Eretz. Uh, now here's the sixth revealed confirmation, Genesis 21:12. Very brief um, confirmation, and he's basically just letting... Abraham, no. Abraham, it's okay to, to let Hagar and Ishmael go because your seed will be named through Isaac. So it's Isaac that you're in, in which your descendants will be named. Um, so then there's another talk about the descendants there. Okay, now here's revealed confirmation number seven. And that is the whole scene that comes at the end of the binding of Isaac. So this is the big one here. Uh, who wants to read... Genesis 22. Can we have our young, well, a young person maybe read? Uh, 22. Sure, yeah. Chapter, oh, okay. Yep, Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through probably uh, 19. Ready? Sometime after these events, God put Abraham to the test. He called to him, Abraham, ready? He replied, then God said, take your son Isaac, your only one whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. There you shall offer him up as a holocaust on a height that will I will point out to you. Early the next morning, Abraham saddled his donkey, took with him his son Isaac, and two of his servants as well. And with the wood that he had cut for the holocaust, set out for the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham got sight of the place from afar. Then he said to his servants, Both of you stay here with the donkey, while the boy and I go out over yonder. We will worship and then come back to you. Thereupon Abraham took the wood for the holocaust and laid it on his son Isaac's shoulders, while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two walked on together, Isaac spoke to his father Abraham. Father, he said. Yes, son, he replied. Isaac continued, Here are the fire and the wood. But where is the sheep for the holocaust? Son, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the sheep for the holocaust. Then the two continued going forward. Okay. That's a, it's a pretty haunting scene. It's a pretty haunting scene. Here's Abraham. There's no response. We don't know what's going through Abraham's mind and heart. It's not, that's not how the biblical narrative is written, but it's very terse. You know, there's tension because he's just, God says, Abraham. Abraham says, here am I. Here I am. Take your son, your only son, the son you love, 
and offer him up. You know, on the mountain that I will call, I will. It's, and so, and we don't know, it's just Abraham obeys. He gets up, he saddles the donkey, he takes the wood. So it's very, you know, we're seeing everything kind of externally, but you know there's, there's stuff going on in here. And the ancient fathers uh, always thought that Abraham's virtue here was just that the raw the obedience to the will of God, even though it was the most contrary thing that he would want to do is to kill his own son. But now, the author of the Epistle of Hebrews says, actually, let's read that. Let's, I'm going I'm to jump ahead. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. <clears throat> Hebrews is at the, right at the end of, the, of Paul's epistles. <clears throat> Way in the back, deep in the back. Uh, chapter 11. Father? Yeah. Where he says God will provide the burnt offering. Yeah. Just like Jesus? Are we foreshadowing? Yes. 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 Definitely. It's pretty cool. It's really me. So if we go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse uh, 17 to verse 20. Um, Reg, do you want it? By faith, Abraham, when, by faith, Abraham, when put to the test, offered up Isaac. He who had received the promises was ready to sacrifice his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your descendants be called. He reasoned that God was able to raise from the dead, and so he received Isaac back as a symbol. By faith, Isaac invoked... That's for good. That's good. Oh, so, this is a very remarkable reading, and you know, I wrote a paper, so as again, I'll, re- I'll reiterate, I have a, I, I'm coming from a very much a point of view of a believer. I mean, I believe that the Bible is inspired, and that the whole thing, even though it wasn't written by the same human being, that there's, you know hundreds if not more human beings who have writ, wrote, writ the, uh, wrote the Bible, that they were all speaking under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And so it all coheres and works together. There's a symphony to the whole thing. And that no human being could have designed this. Okay, It's hundreds of human beings writing over hundreds, the course of hundreds of years, and they're, somehow everything they're doing and saying is, is comes together. So I'm very much a believer. Some of my professors were not so much, you know, and, and I would, you know, repeatedly violate some of their canons of, of how to interpret Scripture. And um, so I, I argued in a paper I wrote that the author of Hebrews is, is accurately reading the text in Genesis. And, uh, you know, I think it's an accurate read. I think that the Genesis text really is saying that Abraham had the faith that Isaac would actually be raised from the dead. Abraham's mindset was that, okay, God told me that my descendants are going to come through this guy. God said that to me. He, I believe that that's true. God has also told me to kill him. What's the old? I, I have another half-baked Sure, go ahead. So, because this really bothers me. Yeah. God wouldn't have picked him if he didn't trust him. God wouldn't have picked him if he didn't think he could fulfill what he wanted done. God knows he can do it. Sure. What happens if Isaac, or 
Abraham questions himself either in not worthy or not capable of doing it. And all of this is not really for God, but for him to convince himself that he's willing to even do this. Yeah, no, there's a... I, well, you got a number of factors. He, the, I think that's what's amazing about salvation history, is that God let it depend on human beings. Human, God ordained it so that the unfolding of his providential plan and the kingdom, the coming of the kingdom of God, human beings would play a real participation in the role of the unfolding of that. Through their prayers, through faith, through their righteous deeds. You know, we have Noah, we have Abraham. So that's that's what we're looking at. It's it's amazing. So a lot. So don't ever think that you're unimportant. It doesn't matter what you do. It does matter what you do. Okay, God's kingdom is going to come to the earth through us and through our faith and through our righteousness. And when we don't believe and when we don't obey God, well, probably good things that otherwise would have happened are not going to happen. Ultimately, it's going to, you know, the kingdom is going to come whether you're there or not. But, I mean, it, it, it comes through us. So that's one factor. And then the second thing, what was the other kind of element that you brought up? Oh, oh, that, I thought you had a good insight. You know, about whether it was almost like as if Abraham knew that he... He, he was obedient. Yeah, I think that happens a lot of times. God leads us to so that our hearts would be revealed for a number of things. First of all, just the fact that our, our character and everything else would be manifest for the angels, for the demons, right? So for the for the joy of the angels, for the for the shaming of the of the enemy, the seed of the serpent, the serpent and his seed, for the so that God would be glorified through us, so that other people would be encouraged. And so that we ourselves would know, well, okay, I, I guess I, yeah, I was able to do that. I would, you know, this is, yeah, I'm, I'm growing in faith. I am growing in obedience. I'm getting closer to God. So certainly this is how the spiritual life works. Nothing half-baked about that, easy. Nothing half-baked. So uh, what I would point out, though, is this, going back to that original. I think that the author of Hebrews is reading this correctly. He's not reading into it. He's exegeting. He's getting the meaning, the objective meaning out of the text accurately. Because of everything we've seen so far, Abraham believes God. So God's told him two things. Your seed will be named through Isaac. Go and kill Isaac. How, how is that possible? Other than the fact that Isaac would be raised from the dead. And look at what, notice what he says to his servants. He says to them in verse uh, 5, Then Abraham, Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the ass. I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. I and the lad will go and worship, and you'll see us again. It still didn't take a... That Abraham had a faith and an idea that Isaac was going to be raised from the dead. Didn't make his killing him any easier. Maybe a little bit easier, but I mean, still took a, quite a bit of obedience for him to actually take the knife to your own son's throat and do something like that. So it was still a great act of obedience um, on the part of Abraham, but I think that he had faith that uh, Isaac was going to be raised from the dead. Maybe he was mistaken in a certain sense, but in another sense he wasn't mistaken because if this is prophetic of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and his resurrection of the dead, then... Absolutely. God was asking <clears throat> Abraham to do something that God himself had to do. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So Abraham is like God the Father, and Isaac is God the Son. One of the points that John Bergsma, on that book that I recommended to you, he makes is this. He places the wood on Isaac. Think about that. Mm -hmm. 
Is that incredible? Mm-hmm. I mean, it just gives you goosebumps. He places the wood on Isaac, and the and it's and the Latin. I'm sorry, in the Greek, it's xulos, which is the exact Greek word that's used for Christ's cross. Okay, so the Father places the cross, in effect, on this on the shoulders of the Son. Now, the the point that Bergson made was that that wood for a whole sacrifice. You had to really get the wood. I mean, there was a lot of wood. You couldn't just, it's not a few sticks. It's like a, a, a good amount of wood. So it would be something like the equivalent of a cross, actually. That, that would be, that much wood would be needed for a sacrifice, okay? Especially for someone, Isaac was 160 pounds or whatever. You know, I mean, to, to do a holocaust, which is a whole burnt offering, someone 160 pounds, you know, it's a lot of wood. So he puts all of this wood, it's like a cross on Isaac, and Isaac's carrying that, and that means Isaac is big and strong. He's not an eight-year-old kid. He's a strapping teenager, and so that means that Isaac is cooperating with this. At first, Isaac doesn't understand what's going on, because that's why he asks the question. And he says, "Where? So, Father, the fire and the knife, but where is the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide the lamb. <laughs> so... At some point, Isaac realizes what's going on, and he cooperates with the whole thing. Right? He could have fought his. He could have fought. He could have resisted. I mean, he was a strong young man at that time. He was strong enough to carry a cross. So, yet another type of Christ. Christ is willingly laying down his life for us, and Isaac is a type of Christ in all of this. And Father, if I can just say this, just kind of popped out at me. If you look here, it says that they brought a donkey with them, and I think that's how Christ made his. Sure. Journey. Sure. To the into the city. city. Yeah. The donkey. Yeah. Saddle his ass. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, how about we have? Uh, can you can you finish it off? You're doing a great job. Yeah, I was sure. Why don't you go to uh, verse 19? So from nine to 19. Okay. Oh wait. Chapter 11. Uh, we're on chapter, it's Genesis, we're going to go back to Genesis 22. Okay, i got to find it, hold on a minute. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 9 until what? Uh, 9 until 19. Okay. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. Next, he tied up his son Isaac and put him on top of the wood on the altar. Then he reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the Lord's messenger called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Lord, he answered. Do not lay your hand on the boy, said the messenger. Do not do the least thing to him. I know now how devoted you are to God, since you did not withhold from me your own beloved son. As Abraham looked about, he spied a ram caught by his its horns in the thicket. So he went and took the ram and offered it up to offered it up as a holocaust in the place of his son. Abraham named the site Yahweh Yira. Hence, people now say on the mountain, "The Lord will see." Okay, I think that's good. Why don't you stop right there? Okay. So an angel of the Lord appears. Now this is the, the thing that you catch, and we we discussed this last week. The angels show up, and sometimes it's like you think it's God, but then you, th- you realize it's not God, and it's kind of ambiguous. And I think that the, the most proper theological explanation is that it really is a created and angelic being that speaks oftentimes in the first person like a prophet would, saying, I, the Lord, da 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 Okay? 
but there are certain things that sort of hint that it's it's not uh, God himself, but an angel. So, for example, if you fast forward to verse uh, 16, the angel shows up again and says, uh, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this. So the Lord is not going to say, says the Lord. It's an angel acting in a prophetic manner, speaking in the first person, and every once in a while you realize that that's what's happening. So, now, here's something that, that you can ask. God, uh, the angel shows up, the angel of the Lord shows up and says, Now I know that you fear God. Okay, so, if this is God speaking in the first person, God is omniscient, right? Well, what's going on here? How come God, and we, he's already, we brought this issue up. God knew what Abraham was going to do the whole time. God's omniscient. And so it was really for the change of knowledge was in Abraham. Another thing, an ancient uh, theologian by the name of Origen says also probably it was the angel that in a certain sense was speaking on, on, on his own behalf. So angels don't know. They're not omniscient. Angels are not omniscient. So possibly the angel is speaking on his behalf so that the angel now has knowledge. And that's why, uh, like St. Paul in Ephesians says that God has manifested his wisdom in the church before the principalities and the powers in heavenly places. So there is a certain, uh, there's this drama, cosmic drama that's taking place in the human race and angels and demons are watching. It's like they're the, they're the audience. And so they want to know how it turns out. There's a great drama and they want to know what's good. You know, they're on the edge of their seat. How's it going to happen? And so the angel says, now I know that you fear God. It was a test and he passed the test and now he knows. So the change in knowledge was in the, Mind of the created angel, possibly. That's what what Origen's interpretation of that is. Uh, there's other ways of interpreting that, though. Okay, I'm going to finish it off. So verses 15 to 19. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, "By myself I have sworn," says the Lord, "because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you, and I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore." And your descendants or your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies, and by your and in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. So Abraham was right. He told his young men that my son and I are going to go and we're going to worship, and we'll both and you'll see us again. And he was right. Okay. So he, there was there's a lot that Abraham understood. He didn't understand the fullness of what was going to take place, but he he understood a lot. Um, now notice the two elements that this is the seventh confirmation of that original promise, and finally we've got the the fourth and the fifth element show up. It's the only one. It's the final one. So it, the fourth and the fifth element are. The, the defeat of the enemies, the, the, the element of the enemy shows up, and then in your seed shall all the nations of the world be blessed. And this is the first time it says seed, because in the other two times it says, in you, Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed, or all the families of the earth will be blessed. But now it's seed, because, I mean, this is a very Christological passage, and so it's appropriate that the seed specifically is brought up. And then it's talked about the gates of your enemies. What else do we hear about gates, enemy? What gates, enemy? Peter upon this rock. Yeah, there we go. I mean, okay, so Christ says to Peter upon this rock, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
So the gates, uh, the, the, the concrete metaphor is this. In the ancient world, you had these different cities, okay? And in the city, there was a center, but it wasn't physically in the center of the city. The center of the city was the gate. So you'd walk into the gate, and all the important things were done at the gate. The selling was done, uh, different agreements were done, political transactions were done, uh, law, judicial transactions were done at the gate, and planning against how to defeat another enemy was done at the gate. And so the gate becomes like the brain of the city. The gate is the is the center of where all the authorities and the warriors are going to meet, and they're going to figure out how to beat something. And so when God says, um, you are Peter on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He's saying that the demons, the serpent and his seed, their, their intelligence and their plans to defeat God's will in the earth, it's not gonna, it's not gonna be successful. So, um, let's look at a few more uh, issues here. So, oh, I, so I make the point here. This, this is the only revealed confirmation that explicitly includes the fourth and the fifth element of that original promise, and that's appropriate because it's through the cross that the serpent and his seed is defeated, and salvation is brought to all nations. Now, in Genesis, uh, these verses here, when God says to Abraham, Abraham, take your son, your only son. Oh, that's slide uh, 13. So take your son, your only son. So the word only is Yahid in Hebrew. Now, in the Septuagint, remember the Septuagint is the Greek Old Testament, in the Greek Old Testament, Yahid is translated mostly as beloved. Um, agapitos, beloved, from agape. All right? So in the Septuagint, it says, Abraham, take your son, your beloved son. Now, what happens, where do we hear that? Else, somewhere else in the Bible, a beloved son. Uh, when Jesus is baptized. Well pleased. Yeah. So Christ at the... Uh, when when the, there's a revelation of the Trinity at the Jordan, and the Father's voice comes down, He says, "This is my Son, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased." And then at the Transfiguration, when Christ again is revealed, God the Father's voice speaks from heaven and says, "This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased." Listen to Him. So beloved, okay. Um, and then I say, "Yeah, see three uh, Matthew three six seventeen and seventeen five. Sometimes Yahid." This, this Hebrew word that means only, is translated in the Septuagint as only or only begotten, and the Greek word is monogenes. Now that shows up multiple times in the Johannine literature, meaning the, the Gospel of John and the Epistles of John. So I point you to uh, John 1.14, uh, 1.18, and then, of course, John 3.16, and it's the famous football stadium <laughs> sign, right? God so loved the world that he sent his monogenes, his monogenes who else? His only begotten son. Okay? Uh, so, it just shows you how there's all these tie-ins to, to Christ. <clears throat> now, here's something else cool. The land of Moriah. The land of Moriah is where this mountain was. Oh, by the way, how if, if Abraham, God says to Abraham, go to the land of Moriah and offer up um, Isaac on the hill that I will show you. I think that's what it says. Check me if that's okay. If I'm right on that. Now, how did Abraham identify the hill? 
I mean, it could be God just revealed it to him and we just it wasn't mentioned. That could be the case, you know. That very well could be the case. In uh, there's a Jewish tradition. I think it's kind of cool. There's a Jewish tradition that Abraham came to the land of Moriah and he looked out and he saw a mountain with a flame of fire on it, <laughs> with a pillar of fire. And he's like, "Well, that's got to be it." <laughs> so um, now this mountain was later called Mount Moriah. Okay, and if we go to Second Chronicles uh, chapter 3, we read this. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed, so forth and so on. So David has this whole event on Mount Moriah where God appears to him, and, and David sacrifices, makes this sacrifice that stops this huge plague and all this kind of stuff. So there's a whole event in David's life that's a, that's kind of like an echo of what happened with Abraham. But then more so, though, Solomon builds the temple. So Abraham was sacked, was attempted to be sacrificed. The near sacrifice of Abraham took place on the very mountain on which the temple was built. And you can go to Jerusalem to this day, and you can go. They say there's a, a you know it's an Islamic mosque is built over the place, the traditional place where Isaac was offered. Um, and if you go in there, the rock is there. I don't, I don't know if that's historically accurate. I think it probably is. But then you go into the mosque, and um, in the center of it, this is big rock that's coming through the through the floor. And they say that's this is the spot. But in any event, the temple was built right where um, Isaac uh, was. The near sacrifice of Isaac, which was a foreshadowing of Christ's sacrifice, and the temple, and that will all be even more meaningful as we go on. But going back to the previous slide, slide 14, in Genesis, okay, I covered all that kind of stuff. Um, okay. Oh, this is another interesting thing here, okay? Um, in that final point that I make, in Jewish tradition, the animal sacrifices in the temple got their power from the near sacrifice of Isaac. So the Jewish rabbi said, well, like, how come, how come when we sacrifice an animal... Or when it was when it was the case that animals were being sacrificed in the temple, how come that was like pleasing to God? How come that would how come that would turn away God's wrath? How come that would be pleasing? How come how, why, why did that have spiritual power with God? And they said because it derived its power from the near sacrifice of Isaac. So it was actually the merits of Abraham and his act of faith that it was for the sake of what Abraham did that God gave spiritual power to the animal sacrifices in the temple. That's at least what some rabbis said. They were so the animal sacrifices were a kind of reminder or representation of the sacrifice of Isaac. Now, what does that sound like? The mass. I'm sorry. The mass. Yeah, it sounds a lot like the mass. But it's a little bit watered down, isn't it? Because well, it's sense. not the actual host. It's just a reminder of something that sure. happened that was incredibly. Important. Yeah, but it's a reminder going back to something that's a prophetic foreshadowing of Calvary, of Christ's sacrifice. So, there, I mean, it is interesting just to see how... Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. And in fact, here's another thing. I wasn't going to include this, but I'll, I'll include this for free here. No charge. <laughs> is I, There's another passage in the uh, the rabbinical commentary on Genesis. They call it, they call it the... Uh, uh, I can't recall the name of it. Anyway, so there's this huge... The, the rabbis from the 4th, 5th, 6th centuries have commentaries on the Bible, 
and uh, they're massive. It's like the commentary set is like this. It's really, really big. And so when you go to the commentary, the rabbinical commentary from the early Talmudic rabbis on this passage, there's even a rabbi who says, Isaac carried the wood like a cross. Because that was a common form of, of execution all the way up into the time of Constantine put an end to the, that form of execution. But it was in the mind of everybody in the ancient world. And so even a, rab, even a Jewish rabbi you know, said it was like Isaac was carrying a cross. Okay, so uh, then I, we got this passage from Hebrews, which we already talked about. Now let's let's try to see if I can finish this off here. Abraham and the promise fulfilled. Now, what I want to show you guys is this: in that original promise that was given to Abraham in Genesis chapter twelve, verses one through three, we have all of salvation history basically condensed into one thing. So we'll read it again, just to remind us uh, again of what it is. Go forth from your land. Now, land note is is. Uh, a Hebrew word, Eretz, which can also mean earth. So earth and land, the same Hebrew word, Eretz. So go forth from your Eretz and from your relatives and from your father's house to the Eretz, to the land or to the earth, which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you, all the families, mishpacha, of the, of the earth or of the ground, the Adamah, shall be blessed. Now, I think this is what I would want to say. I'm going to leave aside the whole thing about the great name, and I'm going to leave aside the whole thing about uh, the cursing for now. Okay, And I'm going to draw attention to these three things here. These are three elements of that original promise. A new land numerous offspring, and blessing to all nations. And what my thesis is, is that at the end of the day, all three of these elements reduce to one thing, to one reality, and that is what I'm calling the eschatological dwelling place of God. I'll remind you again what the word eschatological means. It goes back to uh, uh, the most root level. You've got this Greek word eschaton. Eschaton means the end. But it also has the significance of not just limit, but purpose or meaning. Okay, so what is the end of this pen but to write with? All right? So that's that's what eschaton is in Greek. So that's where you talk about uh, eschatology is the study of the end of the world or the purpose or the, that, that whole destiny or goal towards which all human history is headed. That's the, that's the eschaton or, or, or eschatology. Now, if you talk about an eschatological... So in Ezekiel, a few Sundays ago, we had this temple that Ezekiel saw... And we can call that the eschatological temple, meaning it's the temple that is going to be at the end. That's where that's like the perfect, complete temple. It's going to be in the end, but it's really just a symbol, of something, uh, something really more bigger than the temple. Um, it's the eschatological dwelling place of God. So what I want to try to argue is that basically, land, numerous offspring, blessing to all nations, is the church, is the body of Christ is the eschatological temple because Christ's body is a temple. Okay? And that's it's basically God created the world so that he could dwell with man. That's why he created the world. That's the whole purpose for all salvation history is an eschatological dwelling place so that in the end day human beings and God could dwell together. Could be together. And I think that all of these elements of that original promise can be reduced to that. Okay? 
So I'm going to try to show that here. So a new land, the land of Canaan, in a certain sense, is Eden. Now remember how we were when we studied the Garden of Eden, we showed how it was like the temple. Okay, so Eden, the temple. You just kind of take all of these sort of images and put them together. They're kind of all one thing. All right. So the land of Canaan is a certain kind of Eden, right? So in Genesis 13:10, when Abraham and Lot split up, Lot takes the best part of the of the promised land. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered like the garden of the Lord's. Okay? And then in that vision from Ezekiel, that eschatological temple, the river flows forth out of the temple just like the river flows forth out of Eden. And it goes down into the Jordan Valley and it waters the Jordan Valley and it makes everything alive. So there's this whole element of the sacrament of baptism and grace and the Holy Spirit. Um, now we've seen the connections between the Garden of Eden and the temple. Uh, no, well, the river that flows from Ezekiel's temple runs down to the Jordan Valley. Okay, now when God says land here, remember it's that Hebrew word eretz. And so the best translation is land, but notice that there is that sense of earth as well. Okay, so land here might include the whole world, the entire earth. So the promise to Abraham was what was the promised land was Canaan, but Implicit in that was that Abraham, you're going to become the heir of the entire earth. Okay, I, I think that it's there. Uh, the word land, Eretz, in Genesis 12.1 can mean earth. And I show you other passages where it means just that, like the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth. So also can the word, uh, now if you go to the Greek Old Testament, gay, you've got this Greek word gay. So also can the word gay in Greek, and again, going back to these verses, you see that that's the case. Now there's a very interesting psalm, Psalm 37, 11, uh, verses 11 and verse 12. This is the quote. But the humble, paus, will inherit the land, Eretz. And to this day, Jews say Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. Okay. Uh, but the humble will inherit the land. For those blessed by him will inherit the land, Eretz. But those cursed by him will be cut off. Now, what is the what is one of the major what is one of the beatitudes? Yeah, for they shall inherit the earth. Okay. Now, in a certain sense, Christ, when he spoke that, he could have intended land, but the best I think in that case, the best translation is earth. That Jesus really was meaning earth. But it all goes back to Abraham's promise of the land. So Jesus is interpreting this passage for us, and he's saying Eretz here, which means land, in a deeper sense means earth. So blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the whole earth. Okay. Well, no matter where you stand on the earth, you look to the stars and you can see you're right. amongst the counted descendants that's right. of Abraham. That's right. The, star, the stars of Abraham are seen from all over the earth. That's a, that's a great thing to point out. And we saw uh, in the first class, we talked about how creation itself was like a temple. Okay, so God wants to dwell in the whole earth. That's his, that's his original. So even though there's a lot about Canaan, it's not just about Canaan, it's about the whole earth. All right? Um, and then in Numbers 14.21, still in the Pentateuch, still in the books of Moses, God says to Moses, but indeed, as I live, all of the earth, all of the Eretz, will be filled with the glory of the Lord. So God intends his glory to fill the whole earth, not just 
the Garden of Eden, not just a temple, not just a future eschatological temple, not just a people that are physically descendants of Abraham. His glory is intended to fill the entire earth. And to go and to preach to all ends of the earth. That's right. All ends of the earth. This message of salvation is going to come. That's why in His seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So in Isaiah 6, we have, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole Eretz is full of His glory. And that's the angels who are seeing this kind of eschatological goal. The angels, as they as they look upon the, the Lord, actually they don't look upon the Lord, they cover their eyes, but they're praising God for the fullness of the coming of the kingdom of God. Um, and then we do that right before we celebrate the Mass. Because from the rising of the sun to its setting, a pure sacrifice will be offered in my name, says the Lord. And that's the sacrifice of the Mass. And that brings the glory of God and the kingdom of God through the whole earth. So it's no longer just in Jerusalem that the sacrifice is made on Mount Moriah, but now the sacrifice is the whole earth, all over the whole earth. So um, now in Kings chapter 8, this is a really cool text here. Solomon finishes building the temple, and he says, And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord. Now the cloud is, uh, they call it the Shekinah. The Jews call it the Shekinah. It's the Shekinah glory of God. And it's a symbol of God's presence. And uh, where do we see it in the New Testament? The Transfiguration. So at the Transfiguration, we have the Son of God, the Father's voice, and then a cloud overshadows and covers over. And that's the Holy Spirit. Okay, so the cloud is like the Holy Spirit. And it's a symbol of the presence of God. So... A cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So God built the temple so that the glory would fill it, but He built the earth so that the glory would fill it. And the earth is a temple. You see all the connections? It's, okay, It's kind of a lot to digest, but it's, it's all very... This is God's mind, why He created the world. So now in John chapter 2, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he spoke of the temple of his body. Okay, so Christ's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, where the glory of the dwelling and the glory of God will be. But we are the temple. Sorry, we are the body of Christ. So that means we are the temple. Mm -hmm. God intended the seed of Abraham, us, because we're children of Abraham by faith, to be the place of where his glory would dwell. Romans 4.3 This is how Saint, I've got good authority to read the Bible this way because St. Paul also reads it this way too. The promise to Abraham and his descendants that they should inherit the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. So Paul is reading this as having to do with inheriting the whole world. Just like Christ is blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Not just, not just Canaan. Okay, now this is slide 26. Hebrews 11, 13-16. These all died in faith, not having received what was promised, but having seen it and greeted it from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a fatherland. If they had been thinking of that fatherland from which they had gone out, they would, not, they would have had opportunity to return, but as it is, they desire a better one that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. 
So another way of talking about the temple, the eschatological temple, the body of Christ, the church, the land, the earth, the Garden of Eden, and then we can talk about a city, the New Jerusalem. Okay, because the church is the New Jerusalem. Uh, and then we go to the final book of the Bible, and this is what the John says. I saw the holy city, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride. Who's the bride? The church. Prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will tabernacle. Strange, you know, it's kind of funny English, but it brings out the Greek. He will tabernacle with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them. That's it, guys. Simple as that. That's why God created the whole world. It's to have that eschatological dwelling place. God wants to dwell with men. Simple as that. He wants a, a communion of love and knowledge for eternity. And that's why he made the world. And so in John 1.14, it says, And the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. Skino, same Greek word in, in both of those. Okay, So we our English translations often say, And dwelt amongst us. Um, but it's tabernacled amongst us. So again, that connection between the body of Christ taking up the flesh, the divine person, the second person, the Trinity, taking up into his person the fully human nature. So the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. Okay, so that's the first thing is land. I'm trying to show you how that that first element of the promise to Abraham, the land means the earth. It means it's the eschatological dwelling place. Now, uh, you've got numerous offspring. Um, in Galatians 3.7, Paul says, So you see that it is men of faith who are the sons of Abraham. It's very interesting because, okay, so you've got this element of numerous offspring, but Paul is saying that those who are people of faith are Abraham's offspring. But the third element says that the blessing that in his seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So that's us too, us as Gentiles. So they're both. The, the, the second, this, this second element and the third really are, are kind of they're the same thing. Okay? Um, but who are we? And we just established that already. Who are we? We're the land. We are the holy land in a certain sense, right? We are that, uh, that place that God wants to dwell, that earth that the glory of God wants to inhabit. So in Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed, that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So again, for Paul, that final, that third element of the original promise to Abraham is also verified in us, is also made true in us. So we are the nations in which... Uh, or through which um, we are the nations which are blessed through or in the seed of Abraham, but we also are Abraham's descendants as well. So it's all, but we're the dwelling place, we're the land, we're the promised land as well. So there is a mystical equivalence between the land of Canaan, the Garden of Eden, the temple or the tabernacle, the body of Christ, the church, the city of God, the world. These all point to one thing, the eschatological dwelling place of God. Two more aspects of Genesis 12 to 3 that point towards the Messiah and then the serpent. There's a great name and then the defeat of those who curse. All right. Now, the great name of Genesis 12 2 has royal connotations. Um, and there's these passages I put up. Remember, we talked about Babel. 
and the Tower of Babel and the city of Babylon and how this was a symbol of the pride of man and it was really the product of the seed of the serpent. And you've got the city of man and the city of God. The city of man is built upon the love of man even at the expense of obedience to God. And the city of God is built on the love of God even at the expense of one's own life if need be. All right? So the Tower of Babel is the symbol of the pride of man, the city of man, and they say, let us make a name for ourselves. They want to be great. They want to be exalted. They want to be the king. They want to be the chief. But um, they're, they're misplaced in that uh, because they're not going to do it God's way. So in Second Samuel, the promise that God makes to King David, he says, I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And then finally in Genesis 17, has to do with the Abraham's name and kings shall come forth from you. So, um, I think that, uh, I guess I think probably my point in all of this was trying to show how the, remember I made the point, I think it was two lessons ago, that, you know, the, the Satan wanted to be this high, exalted figure. He wanted to be like a, a god. And that desire in itself was not wrong. And actually, that is the vocation that every human being has, is to be like a god. Um, but he wanted to do it on his own terms, and that was the problem. That was Satan's pride and his sin, and uh, instead of on God's terms. And so you've got this contrast between, here's King David, who's representative of Christ, who's representative of the body of Christ, who's representative of every Christian's calling and vocation, to be a great one, to be a king. And there's a right way to do that and a wrong way to do that. And the people who built the Tower of Babel did it the wrong way because they wanted to do it on their own terms. But God's will... uh, But there are other figures throughout salvation history that did it God's way and did it the right way. Um, So then we just get more into uh, the defeat of those who curse. Okay, The defeat of their enemies, the seed of the serpent... So part of that, or that final confirmation of the promise talks about possess the gates of their enemies or possess the gate of their enemies. Um, now there's another... Oh, we only have 30 seconds left. <laughs> okay, that's pretty much it. Well, I think that's good. Um, so for next class, after Thanksgiving, come in the... You know, it won't be for Thanksgiving, but uh, read Luke chapter 1. Okay, you're going to have the Annunciation... Uh, and then what's really big is pay special attention to the Magnificat and to the Benedictus, which is the Magnificat is that famous song that Mary sings, and the Benedictus is the famous song that Zechariah sings after God gives him the speech back. So those those two poems are really, really important. They, they sum up all salvation history. And a lot, and they, they cover the material we've been covering with Abraham. So. Okay, thank you everybody. Thank you.